If you have your Bible handy, why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, please. Revelation chapter 2. That's where where we are going to begin this morning. But before we begin, uh, I've got a few things I need to take care of. First of all, uh, the high school Devo that is normally held at the Hudgens house on the first Sunday of every month is still going on this afternoon at 5. I will be leading it with the Hudgens out of town. But... You're all welcome. I think Jacob sent out an email to the parents earlier this week. Uh, so just so you know, it's still, still happening. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's not often that I get to preach two times on a Sunday and have Jacob in the audience. So this is an exciting time. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's cool. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Uh, we've had it planned out where this was happening. And so I have been working on this sermon that for this, this service, and I have been excited for it because it's, it's a lot of what has been chewing at me recently, chewing at my heart and chewing at my emotion, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. And so if you'll look with me in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is where we'll begin. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Now, I am a fairly emotional guy, and since I wear my emotions a lot on my sleeve, And you can ask my wife about this because a couple of days ago, I had found this music video on Facebook, and I watched it, and I was focused on it, and I started to realize it was making me tear up in the middle of Panera. And I just kind of looked around and hoped no one had actually seen me start to tear up, and I quickly exited out of it. But before I did that, as a loving husband, I sent it to my wife to make sure she would cry with me. (laughs) But that music video tugged at my heart. It It made me emotional. I was focused into it. I was, I was looking specifically at it and watching it, allowing it to just soak in. And it, was, it made me emotional because it was about a dog, and the dog grew old and then had to be dealt with as it grew old and sick, and it really hit me hard. And I just kind of had to shake my head and wonder, well, where is this coming from? It's only a Monday. There's not that much going on right now. But it was because I was so focused on that video and so engrossed in it that my emotions came through. They seeped through, and that's, that's the idea I want to get at this morning. Because when we focus on something, our emotions tend to be shown. Because we're so engrossed, we're so devoted to what's before us, that our happiness comes out, our tears come out, our anger or frustration comes out. Emotions are a part of everything that we do, and they tend to influence our decisions and our actions. And sometimes not always for good, because sometimes we can be angry and act upon it, or frustrated and lash out at people. But emotions are always there. And when we look at the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, we see that their emotion, their love that they had at first, was gone. They had started off so strong and so loving, and it fueled a lot of what they did, and eventually that fuel just, just wasn't there anymore. The Ephesians allowed their work and their obedience to God to become dull or rote and routine because the emotion was gone. I think there are times where we can become like the Ephesians. 
our worship can become rote or just another day in our, our routine to fulfill. We don't have our emotion in it. And sometimes that's, that's because the week's been tough. School has been hard. Helping the family out has been hard. The chores I have to do, my job I have to do, has been difficult. And by the time I get there on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, my emotions just aren't in it because I've spent my emotions on everything else. And by the time we get to worship, our heart can be spread thin and not really be there for us. And when that happens, we have to be able to refocus and revive our heart. And that's what I want to look at this morning is the idea of reviving our worship. Now, this isn't about changing what our worship is about or about changing things we do or say in worship, but rather this is about our heart in worship. Where is it at? Are we more focused on what's going on in the afternoon or after services that we're too busy or and that we overlook what's being said at the table or what's being prayed about or sung about? Have we allowed our heart and our worship to become rote or routine? This morning, I want us all to be able to look at ourselves and examine it ourselves, be able to say, well, maybe sometimes that's how it is. And I know this feeling because I've sat in the pews and I've had this feeling of, it's just another Sunday. This is just what I'm here to do. And I sing the songs and I listen to the prayers and I pray and it's just what God expects of me. My heart isn't really in it. We've had these moments. But what we can do is we can revive our worship by refocusing on the truth that produces the right feelings. And if we don't revive our worship, if we allow our hearts to become dull or stale, then our worship runs the risk of not being pleasing to God. And if our worship isn't pleasing to God, then we're doing something wrong. And we run the risk of being condemned. If we don't recheck and revive our worship, then we may have the appearance of holiness and righteousness, but on the inside we're empty and not really hoping or confident in God. Think of a marriage or any type of relationship. If there is a marriage without love, then it's empty. Yes, I may do chores around the house. Yes, I may ask my wife how she is doing. But if there is no love in my marriage, then it's just a shell. There's nothing inside of it. It feels empty and dull, and there's a disconnect between me and my wife. Likewise, when our worship is hollow or dull, there's a disconnect between us and God. We have to work on that to make sure that disconnect just really isn't there. When we understand that worship, there's a place for emotions in worship, and there's a place to revive our worship, we have to start in one place. And I... Apparently did not get my bullets right, but the first place we have to start is that truth produces emotion. Look with me again, or turn with me now to Exodus, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. But when we look at truth, we have to understand something. Feelings are not factual. The way I feel one day can be completely different the next day. I can be frustrated by the way something happened on Monday, and then on Tuesday I can be completely happy with how my life is going. My feelings change, and they aren't factual. But when we understand something as truth, then we begin to have feelings produced from that truth. When a sports team loses, and we know it's, for, for tr and we know it's true that they have lost, they played a really bad game, then the emotion that comes out of that is frustration, sorrow, 
We're angry because our team just did not play as well as they could have. If we're diagnosed with a serious illness and we know that that's true, we're sad. We don't understand why we have to deal with that illness or why we've been tasked with that illness. And we become frustrated. Likewise, when we're successful with something, when something is completed and we get a good grade on it or our boss tells us good job, well, then we understand that the job we did was good and we begin to feel happy and confident with what we're doing. Truth produces emotion. And there are biblical examples of this. In in Exodus chapter 14, we see an example of this. In Exodus 14, what we have here is the Israelites are fleeing their slavery from Egypt. God has sent the ten plagues to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Pharaoh has finally had enough when it came to the death of the firstborn son. And so he sent out Israel from the midst of the Egyptians. And as the Israelites are being led by Moses away, they come to a point where they're kind of cornered. On one side, they have the Red Sea. And on the other side, it's Pharaoh's armies coming to reclaim the Israelites. And the Israelites are frustrated. They're worried because they don't see any way to go. And they start to question why God even brought them out of Egypt if they're just going to die. However, if you look with me in chapter 14, starting in verse 30, we see what happens and we see what comes from God's actions. 1430. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What had happened, I apologize, I meant to background it a little more, but what had happened was God told Moses to lift up his staff and the Red Sea would part. And so he, Moses did that and the Red Sea parted and the Israelites were able to cross on dry land to get away from the, the Egyptians. And as the Egyptians tried to cross the dry land, Moses again raised his staff and it, the waters came back down and flooded over top of the Egyptians, saving the Israelites. And so now we'll pick back up in verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Israelites were saved. God had saved them from certain destruction as it had appeared. And they recognized this. They saw the truth in that. The fact here is simple. That God saved his people. And the emotions that are produced from this fact are fear or respect of God's power. Joy for what God had just done for them. Praise because of God's power. And all these emotions come from the one simple fact. God has saved you. Truth produces emotion. And this will later become a source of worship for the Israelites throughout their entire history. They will continue to go back to this idea or this point in their timeline that God saved us on the Red Sea. And it continues to produce emotion and worship. Turn with me now to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. In the book of Nehemiah, what we have is Israel in captivity. And Nehemiah, the title character of this book, is a high official in King Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus' court. 
or Artaxerxes, I apologize. He's a high official in King Artaxerxes' court. And he begins to worry about Jerusalem. He worries about his people because they don't have a home. They are captives. And so he goes to King Artaxerxes and says, listen, I, I really need some help. I would like to go back and rebuild the walls of my city. And you can imagine probably there was some fear with how Nehemiah was going about this because you don't know what the king is going to say. But the king grants him. He says, yes, go ahead. And by the way, on your trip there and on your way there, I'm going to provide for the ways to get through other kingdoms. I'm going to provide for safety so you can rebuild Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah takes a group of Israelites to go back and rebuild the walls. And as they're rebuilding the walls, they face opposition from other people. Namely, Tobias and Sanballat, members of the Samaritans and the Ammonites. And they're constantly mocking the Israelites or just confusing them in their work, trying to stop the rebuilding happening. And eventually it comes to a point where they plan an assassination attempt for Nehemiah. But none of that works, and eventually Nehemiah and the Israelites rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And in, verse, in chapter 8, what we see is the response to the rebuilding of that wall. Start with me in verse 1, please. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before water, the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of law of the law. And down with me in verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josebed, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, drink, and to send portions, to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The wall was finished. The law is read. And the Israelites react to that law. They're crying. They're weeping because of what they hear. They know what they, what they know here is that God has brought them home. The fact is that they are now in their own place, back in Jerusalem. And they have the ability to have the law read before them in their own home. And this produces so many emotions among them. So much so that the Levites have to calm the people. Could you imagine that? The emotions that are pouring from reading the law and understanding what God expects of them has produced so much emotion that other people have had to come down and calm you down from weeping and crying. And instead change that weeping or crying to rejoicing and praising because of what God has done. Truth produces emotions. It produces emotions when we have this opportunity, like the Nehemiah and the Israelites did, to come back home, to re-examine what God has first said. Truth produces emotions. 
Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see another example of how truth produces emotion. In this chapter, what we have is the beginning of King David's reign in Israel. But all be, at the beginning of King David's reign, the Israelites did not have the Ark of the Covenant with them. It had been captured when King Saul had died at the end of 1 Samuel. The Philistines had it, and there had been some attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But they all failed. And after one particular failure, where David had put it on a cart, and it had cost a man's life, the ark was placed in Obed-Edom's home. And God, through the ark, blessed all that Obed-Edom had or did. And finally, the ark of the covenant did come back to Jerusalem. And what we see here is how David reacts to the ark of the covenant coming back home. We'll begin in verse 12. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he was sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of horn. What we have here is David, seeing that the ark of the covenant is coming back home, rejoices. He humbles himself, not wearing his natural royal, pre, royal kingly garb, instead wearing a humble linen ephod, and is dancing with rejoicing before the ark. The fact here is God was blessing his people through his ark, and that the ark was finally where it belonged. And the emotional response is joy, praise, sacrifice, because God was with them. Truth produces emotions. And because truth produces emotions in these stories, we can apply it to our own lives. We can see it with what we do. And we know there are things from God's Word that are truth. All of what God has said is truthful. And that should produce emotions for us. And I know this feeling. There have been times where I knew the truth that I was apart from God. My sin separated me from God. And I felt guilty and stressed because I knew my salvation was at risk because of my sin. It produced anger at myself, frustration, sorrow. Truth produced emotion in my sin. But likewise, it produces emotion when I'm confident, when I am living as God expects of me, when I'm trying to do my best to keep His commandments, I'm happy. I am willing and able to praise God for all that He has done in my life and always looking forward. Truth produces emotion in our actions. We feel this way when sometimes we see our spiritual family struggling. We see them dealing with temptation or sin. And we begin to feel stressed out because we can't really take away that burden because they're not letting us. We're not able to help them because they're shying away. And we start to become stressed out because we see them falling away from God. There have been times where we have joy for our others in our spiritual family or in our family. So those times where people obey the gospel and we are overflowing with joy and love and praise because another soul has been saved. There are times when someone overcomes a sickness after many prayers have been offered up and we have praise for God for answering our prayers. Joy for the person dealing with the sickness because they're, they're better now. 
Truth produces emotion. And all of us have had these feelings, and these feelings of anger or grief because of stuff that we have done, stress or frustration because we see others slipping away, joy, love, comfort because we know God is with us and God strengthens us. But the fact of the matter is that emotions come from truth. And if emotions come from truth, then we have to understand that emotion fuels our worship. And when I say that, that, I simply mean that our worship is driven by those emotions that come from truth. It means when someone is praying or songs that we sing are coming from God's word and we see the truth that God has, is with us, that he is caring for us, strengthening us, that I am feeling happy or sorrow with what's said or what's sung. It means that my singing comes from a joy of the word that I am singing, the words that I understand and know that are being used to praise God. My prayers are spoken with reverence and with awe to what God has done or what he is going to do. My talks and thoughts are driven by what God expects of me and expects of all of us and what he says in his Bible. Emotions fuel my worship. They fuel the way I talk and the way I sing in, in services. And there are biblical examples of this all across the New Testament and the Old Testament. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we see a vivid example of how emotion drove worship with Jesus. In Matthew 26, what we see is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, his trial that he is about to go through. And Jesus is extremely emotional. And we'll pick up in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And again, he came and found in them sleeping, and for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus' prayers in Gethsemane are driven by sorrow and stress. They're driven from his emotion of what he knows is about to happen. In verse 37, he says he has begun to become sorrowful and dreadful. In verse 38, his soul is sorrowful unto death. These are strong and deep emotions with his prayers. He knows what's going to happen. He understands what he has to do because it's his Father's will. But he prays from his emotion. Jesus' emotions fuel his prayers to God. Turn with me now to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. In verses 169 through 175, we see that our obedience should be driven by our emotion to God. Psalm 119, starting in verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. 
My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. All throughout this, the psalmist is talking about his lips are going to bring forth praise because of the law that God has commanded. The statutes that God has set forth, the rules he expects of his disciples are driving this psalmist to praise. He is happy because God's rules have given him a way to salvation. It has given him a chance and an opportunity to be more like God. The psalmist's joy comes from his obedience. It comes from the truth that has been given to him. And it again produces more obedience and more worship to God. The psalmist's joy fuels his worship. And our joy can fuel our worship as well. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And I apologize for kind of flipping back and forth, but there are so many good examples in the Bible of how emotion fuels our worship that I just had to get to some of these. James chapter 5, we read of one of my favorite images when it comes to emotion and worship. James chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Do you see what James is saying here? That if you are sorrowful, pray to God. If you're cheerful, sing praise to God. If you're sick, ask for help and ask for the elders to come pray for you. No matter your emotion, prayer or praise should always be a response. This means if we're dealing with temptation that is stressing us out, then my first response should be to pray to God and ask Him for help. If I have overcome a sickness or a trial that has been plaguing me for so long, my first response would be to praise God for His help and His guidance. Emotion fuels our worship. And it should be fueling our prayers and our praise. That's how we should be worshiping. Our worship should always be coming from emotion. We should never feel rote or routine. And if we are feeling rote or routine with our worship, then we have to pinpoint the issue. And the issue is more than likely the fact that our emotion just isn't there. I am joyful because I have been saved. And because I have been saved... My joy is going to drive me to do what God expects me to do. There are times where I've been sorrowful because someone I know or I have been dealing with sickness. And that sorrow is, has driven me to pray to God, to ask for help. There are times where I'm happy because someone committed their life to Christ. And so I rejoice with them. And I praise God for what He has done. There are times where I'm frustrated because people I know are dealing with sin. And they're falling away. And I can't seem to do anything about it. And so I pray to God and I ask Him for help. And I ask Him for guidance for the person that is dealing with sin. Emotion drives worship. It drives our prayers. It drives our songs. 
It drives my relationship with my brethren in Christ. Emotion fuels our worship. That means it, it can and should be shown in our worship. Emotion is going to be different for all of us, though. So sometimes our emotion is going to be solemnity. It's going to be respect that we show to God and His Word. So sometimes that seems like we're stoic and quiet. But in reality, if we're solemn, if we're respectful for God, it just means we're dwelling on His words. Sometimes emotion is going to be happiness and excitement. The song I am singing makes me happy because of the words about it remind me that I have been saved. And so I am going to be smiling. I am going to be singing out loudly. Sometimes prayers are going to hit me right in my heart. It's going to make me sorrowful for things that I have done. It's going to make me regretful for things that I have dealt with. And it's going to make me tear up and feel guilty. My emotion is going to be different in my worship, but my emotion is always going to be there. That's how we revive our worship. We should always feel comfortable to show our emotion. We should always feel comfortable to be able to smile when songs make us happy, to cry when something that has been said or something that God has written or has, is saying through His Word and through His disciples has pricked our hearts. Our emotions should never feel, we should never feel f- judged because our emotions are being shown. We should always feel comfortable to show those emotions. Likewise, though, our emotions should never feel contrived. I am not going to smile or be happy because just, just because someone next to me is happy or smiling. I'm going to be happy because the joy is truly in my heart about what God has done for me. I am not going to begin crying because just everyone else is crying. My sorrow is going to come from my heart. It's not going to be contrived. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we're looking for emotional highs or lows in our worship. I am not worshiping just so it can make me feel good or make me feel bad and really motivate me to to change my life. That's not the point of worship to cater to my feelings. What I'm saying is that my worship should produce emotion, the truth should produce emotion, and that in turn should fuel my worship. It should affect how I pray, how I sing, how I answer to God. If we're willing to examine our worship and look at if it has become dull or rote, then sometimes we're going to realize we need to revive our worship. We're going to be able to need to refocus our hearts on what God has said. Because if I am not willing to revive my worship, then I'm not willing to try and please God. And if I'm not willing to try and please God, then I'm going to be condemned because I'm only looking out for myself. Reviving our worship brings us closer to God. It brings us closer to being more like Him and pleasing Him in what we say, sing, or do to Him. Will you pray with me about that? Father, we come to You now so thankful for these opportunities to worship You and praise You for all that You have done in our life. Father, we know there are times where our life is stressful and tough, And we begin to feel spent by the time we come to worship you. Father, we pray that you will revive our worship. That you will help us to refocus our hearts on you. And the truth that you have given us. That you are there for us. That you love us. And you strengthen us. Father, we pray that our emotions will always be there in our worship. 
that we will always feel comfortable in showing our joy or our sorrow and our praise to you. Father, you have blessed us with so much. Most of all, you have blessed us with your son who came onto this earth to die for our sins, to give us that opportunity at salvation. We pray that we will always remember his sacrifice and allow that to help us to refocus our hearts on you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We never like to leave any opportunity or worship service without a chance for people to join God, to obey the gospel. We have the opportunity here. We have the water here. If there's anybody here who understands the gospel and knows that baptism is for the remission of your sins, that you want to change your life, to put on Christ and put on salvation, won't you come now while we stand and sing?